Ledvid Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth and one of the great problems afflicting the big cities of this great nation. It has to do with the collapse of public order, uh, collapse of public order with the breakdown of what has been known in the past as uh, broken windows policing. What does that all mean? Well, drive uh, along the freeway in New York or L.A. uh, or anywhere, and uh, you will find homeless encampments. You will find increases in graffiti. And what does all of this matter? What it matters is it has an impact directly on the rate of violent crime. Who says so? Uh, somebody who has researched it and has unique insight into what is happening with our rising crime rate in this country. His name is Charles Murray. He is the F.I. Hayek uh, Emeritus Chair in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And he just completed uh, a paper for AEI called The Collapse of Broken Windows Policing in New York City, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., 2013 to 2022. Uh, Dr. Murray, thank you for joining us on the Medved Show. Uh, It's my pleasure. It's been a long time. It's been too long, but uh, this is such an important issue, and so many people feel it so profoundly. Uh, Why are people wrong when they talk about uh, vandalism, uh, littering, uh, camping out in parks or sidewalks, when they talk about this as victimless crimes? Well, what's going on there, first of all, is the people who are saying that are very seldom the people who have to live with it. Uh, (laughs) The reason that, that what we call these minor crimes are important if you're trying to live in an inner city neighborhood is that it's, it's not only no fun, it's also scary and deteriorates the quality of life. If when you walk down the street, you have to step over a drunk. If you have a knot of young guys who, uh, who intimidate you as you walk past, who, if there's uh, open use of drugs and so forth, all of these things individually and the graffiti, all of these things individually are irritants, and, and but taken together, they pretty much ruin your daily quality of life. And uh, do they have an impact on the rate of more serious crime, violent crimes? Well, there are two ways of looking at it. Uh, is it a serious crime if a drunk driver kills somebody? And the answer is yes, it is. It's not robbery or rape or something like that. It's serious. Well, if you cut down on the ability of police to to uh, make stops of people who may or may not be drunk drivers, you're going to have fewer drunk drivers arrested. You're going to have more injuries. In terms of the things like rape and uh, robbery and murder, you've got different stories in different cities. In Los Angeles, you've already seen uh, serious crime go up. And in major way, including, of course, these well-publicized mass robberies from stores, but uh, also other aggravated assault and so forth. In Washington, you don't see that yet. On the other hand, there is some evidence that people just aren't bothering to call the police anymore because nothing's going to happen. 
New York City is the weirdest case of all. New York City has really cut down on the active uh, broken windows policing, but it also seems to have ramped up uh, some of its work against the most serious crimes. And New York City has not seen increases in serious crimes. But Michael, main point about the most serious crimes in broken windows policing is this. It's a lagging indicator. You know, it, you don't get a one-to-one increase in serious crimes with a one-to-one with a drop in broken windows offenses. It comes along later. As you uh, um, write about uh, the remarkable reduction in crime uh, that occurred in this country um, more than 20 years ago, and uh, a great deal of that reduction in crime, I, I remember at the time being amazed and amused that people uh, spoke about it as a consequence of uh, Mayor Giuliani cracking down on the squeegee men. Uh, I, yep. I believe you wrote about the squeegee men. Uh, what was uh, what was the problem with the squeegee men? Uh, people can't remember if they aren't of a certain age. It used to be in New York City, every time you stopped at a stoplight, particularly in the tougher parts of town, you had these guys with these squeegee sponges coming and plastering them over your windshield, supposedly to clean them, and they actually made them more dirty, and you were supposed to fork over a buck or two in, in gratitude for the service. It was it was kind of legalized minor robbery is what it was. And just getting rid of that all by itself changed a lot of optics about day-to-day life in New York City. That was the big publicity, but they were also increasing enforcement of fare evasion, you know, jumping the turnstiles. That made a big difference because guess what? When you pick up a guy for jumping a turnstile in a subway and you check out his record, an awful lot of the times the guy has an outstanding warrant for his arrest for something serious. So all of these things that went on under Giuliani were a step in the right direction with the squeegee men being uh, his his, uh, publicity leader. And uh, the reduction in crime in New York City, which really led the way for the rest of the country, is still staggering to uh, read about and I would imagine to write about. How much did crime go down uh, during the best years of broken windows policing? Well, the the whole period from 1991 to uh, about around 2010-2012 it went down, depending on the specific crime, anywhere from 50% to 70 or 80%. Again, you have to have been old enough to live through the 1980s to understand how dramatic the change was. It was gradual, and and here's where there's a huge fight among uh, the people who study this problem. Uh, I think most of the effect could be attributed to uh, stricter policing, including of minor offenses, and even more to locking people up who are chronic offenders. But you will get people who write serious papers saying, no, you had crime going down all over the world, and and so it must have been something else except what seemed to me the obviously most important things. Well, the obviously most important things, if if people are actually uh, in prison, uh, they can't commit violent assaults on you, can they? Exactly. So people talk about, oh, we don't rehabilitate, we don't deter. Come on, that's not the main thing. With violent, serious crime, a huge proportion of it, about half, 
is committed by a very small percentage of people who ever get arrested, five to seven percent of them. You have uh, you have some bad actors out there who do an incredible amount of damage. You put those guys behind bars. You may not deter them. You may not rehabilitate them, but they aren't going to be preying on people outside. And uh, again, this um, uh, progress that we made, uh, and I remember here in the state of Washington where I live, uh, we had an initiative that passed a three strikes and you're out position. The idea that we are going to take crime seriously, we're going to crack down on it, that actually worked. So when did it stop working? That's the fascinating uh, insight that Dr. Murray has put together. We will come right back with more from Charles Murray. He is the author of a tremendous piece in the Washington Post uh, called Broken Windows Policing Worked. In the decade before crime rose, broken windows policing stopped that crime. Uh, We'll talk about how and why and why it changed for the worse. That and more with Dr. Charles Murray coming up on the Medved Show. More of Michael Medved in a moment. My distinct and profound honor to host Dr. Charles Murray, who's been a guest on this show several times before. He was the author of a a tremendously important book uh, that deserves more attention than it received. It's uh, called Facing Reality, and it has to do with some of the myths and realities uh, about race and race relations in the United States. His most recent work uh, is um, a a, a profoundly influential piece in Washington Post. Uh, It is uh, called Broken Windows Policing Worked. Let me ask you a question about broken windows policing that I was just talking about with my producer, Jeremy. Um, Right Outside where I'm broadcasting today from downtown Seattle are are huge walls and spaces and freeway underpasses that are completely covered by grotesque graffiti. I mean, it's huge and it's also new. When my wife and I moved to the city 27 years ago, it is now, uh, she was... Astonished, she said, "What happened to all the graffiti? There's no graffiti here. It's Seattle, Washington. It's it's amazing." Well, then they let it go. Uh, yep. If uh, if all of a sudden Mayor Harrell or somebody else said, "Okay, we're going to concentrate all power and money and attention and have a two-week program and just clean up all the graffiti." Uh, and paint over it, Uh, would that graffiti reappear immediately or could that kind of activity have a major impact? 
Quick point. One thing we learned back in the 80s and 90s, if you paint over the graffiti right away or you clean it off, it doesn't come back right away. Uh, it, 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 it is partly because the guys who did the graffiti sort of feel like they've wasted their time, so they'll go do it someplace else. <laughs> and it's also because it sort of changed, changed the tone for everything. But the other thing, Michael, the, you go ahead and paint over the graffiti. That's a great idea. And tell the police that um, to have uh, graffiti painting materials, and they're quite distinctive, is a minor offense that a cop can stop you for and arrest you for. It's not that they're going to throw you in jail for five years, but you're going to get stopped. And there are all sorts of people who do not want to be stopped by the police. They are people who are carrying guns that are unregistered and illegal. There are people who are carrying drugs. There are people who have outstanding warrants. So if you start arresting people who are actually painting graffiti or have the tools for it, that is going to have a real deterrent effect, not because of the punishment alone, but because of the risk it puts people at of being caught for more serious things. That's, it's so extraordinary. Um, they, we are talking during the break a little bit about the late James Q. Wilson, who was a uh, an absolutely brilliant sociologist at uh, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, and then later at Harvard. And he was the one who originated this term, broken uh, windows effect. Uh, is there definitive numerical proof that allowing graffiti on walls, windows broken without being repaired, uh, litter being uncollected, prostitution on street corners? We just had a, a brief cleanup where they closed several motels on Aurora Avenue here. Uh, does all of that, uh, without question, increase the dangers, of physical dangers of more serious crime? There is no positive proof of a relationship that is simple, okay? Because the things that go into reducing crime are complicated, and they do really depend on your incarceration policy and a bunch of other things. I'm not trying to dodge the question, but I, but here's what I would like you to think about. Think of the list of things you just gave. Imagine a street on which all of those things are occurring today and that same street next month if they've stopped occurring. That, that, that difference, part of me wants to say, who cares whether it affects uh, more serious crime. I'm willing to make that case in a complicated way. But the simple thing is public order has been restored on that street. And that's that's what you want from the police above everything else, a sense of safety and order as you try to go about your everyday life. And guess what? Out in uh, your wealthy Seattle suburbs, they don't have a problem with uh, graffiti and uh, guys lying drunk in the street. The problem, well, maybe in Seattle it's gotten worse in the good neighborhoods too, but mostly this problem is in neighborhoods with people with modest incomes and neighborhoods where most people are members of minorities. And uh, this is why this is, if people look about uh, what, what kind of initiatives, what kind of policies could help bring Americans together. 
addressing some of the broken windows crimes that you discuss in your piece, that could actually bring people together across racial and economic lines, couldn't it? Yeah, well, for one thing, if you want to get a conservative set of people in terms of what they want from daily life, uh, blacks and Latinos, hardworking blacks and Latinos who are just trying to make a living, an honest living, and raise their families, they are in favor of this kind of thing. They aren't calling for defunding the police. They're calling for more police. So it can, on the one hand, all at once, I think it would be really healthy for this country if you had coalitions like that where people would say, hey, these, these other people want the same things out of life I want to. I think that would be a huge uniting thing. It's also a huge uniting thing if the rich people don't retreat into their own little enclaves and never interact with anybody else. And that's something else that's happening more and more. And uh, is people retreating into their own uh, isolated enclaves? Whatever happened to the idea of three strikes, you're out? Ah, it worked so well, just like all the reductions in crime, that after a while we forgot how we got there. It's like uh, stockbrokers who've never been through a bear market and don't know how to deal with it, and they think there will never be a bear market. Well, you have a lot of people that say low crime is just the natural way things are. They don't realize putting all those people in jail made a difference. Having all those stop and frisks of people by the police made a difference. Catching the subway fare evaders made a difference. They forget all that. Law crime is supposed to be low, and why are we being so tough on these minor crimes? It's bad memories, Michael, as much as anything else that explains a lot of stupidity about this uh, topic. So learning history, as in so many other areas, is crucial. Uh, you can learn some history. Check out the piece we're talking about, about broken windows policing by Charles Murray. It's posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, when we come back, uh, a, uh, an effort to make New England a separate country, uh, racially pure. We'll get to what that means coming up on the Medved Show. Medved show, there's all kinds of desires to try to bring people together in this country. And uh, of course, that's a desirable thing to do. But at some point or another, you recognize that there are just some folks who are a little bit off the, uh, the, the mainstream. And that has uh, the case with a new group that is getting all kinds of attention. And it is a, uh, a new group of uh, neo-Nazis. And they are located in supposedly one of the most enlightened, most uh, liberally 
oriented parts of the United States. That would be the uh, area known as New England. Now, what's the uh, point about New England? Why should they have a uh, an upsurge of Nazism there? Well, ap- apparently, it's um, because there is, or they believe, that this is a, a particularly... Uh, white uh, and ethnically pure part of the country where the whole idea of white identity has um, uh, actually uh, broken out. And <laughs> the, um, the idea of this kind of ethnic purity, uh, it's written about in Rolling Stone magazine, Uh, They have under the headline, Fascist Fantasy, white supremacists are calling for a peaceful separation from the United States and a ban on people of color moving anywhere in New England. A neo-Nazi front group is demanding that New England secede and establish itself as a white nation, decrying, quote, enemies that are, quote, all around us and vowing to defend racial integrity. The People's Initiative of New England, that is an acronym for PINE, get it? People's Initiative of New England, published a revolutionary manifesto on July 27th, um, obviously just a couple of weeks ago, advocating separation from the United States of America. PINE is the creation of the neo-Nazi organization NSC-131. Uh, with often violent street confrontations and stiff arm, Heil Hitler salutes. Pine is intended to give those same toxic political beliefs a more palatable political framework. The Pine document appeals to nostalgia and shame. Our people, who once built the most prosperous nation the world has ever seen, have been embarrassed, sold out, and demoralized. It alleges that the only option is to establish a sovereign and unified New England and thereby set an example for revolutionaries everywhere. Uh Uh-huh. In a nation where a previous secession attempt by racists sparked the bloodshed of the Civil War, Pine fancifully imagines a peaceful separation. Uh, Pine is basically NSC-131, but instead of going out and punching people at drag shows, which is always, of course, a productive... And uh, By the way, I'm teasing about that. I don't want somebody to to report me, oh, Medved said it was uh, productive to go punch people at drag shows. No, 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 no. I don't think going out and punching people... um, under any occasions is particularly what the country needs. Um, But instead of going out and punching people at drag shows, they're showing up at Trump rallies and recruiting Trumpers into out-and-out white supremacy. So says Chris Goldsmith. He is the founder of Task Force Butler, uh, a veteran-led anti-fascist nonprofit that published a 300-page dossier on uh, NSC-131 for use by journalists and law enforcement. How do you find 300 
pages to write about this fringe group that that honestly does not appear to be that influential or even menacing. Uh, NSC-131 unabashedly deploys the salutes and symbols of Hitler's genocidal German regime. The group's literature brags that by using the swastika, we place ourselves in the most stark opposition possible to everything we would change in modern society. NSC members dress in, what do you think, in khakis, uh, black hoodies, and cover their faces. Um, yeah, uh, frat boys wearing khakis and uh, proud boys. Uh, no, the proud boys wear T-shirts. These guys wear full hoodies and they cover their faces. They're notorious for staging confrontations at liberal events, spewing hate, and rumbling with anti-fascists. Always fun. Its literature declares, quote, we become less fringe with every successful action. Our presence normalizes the impossible. The group uh, pointedly adopts the culture war crusades of modern conservatism as its own with declarations like, we remind our people that it is Nazism to oppose drag queen story hour and critical race theory. Okay, you don't have to be a Nazi to object to drag queen story hour in public libraries or to object to critical race theory in public schools. Attempting to draw America Firsters into its ranks, <clears throat> Pine representatives have distributed literature at Trump rallies in states like New Hampshire. A Pine political platform also posted to Telegram lays out five of the group's demands, including that New England will be formally recognized as a white homeland and a sovereign state, that the institutions of the U.S. federal government will no longer be recognized, good luck with that, and we will end all non-white migration to New England with the goal of maintaining our ethnic identity. The group's intentions for what happens to the existing non-white residents of the reason is darkly unspoken. Uh, they uh, declare New England is the whitest region in North America, and it is here that our unique pan-European identity was originally established. Pine literature alleges, adding, if someone is not of European descent, they are not a New Englander. Well, okay, at least they include, I mean, some of the old racism in New England was aimed at Italian-Americans who were not considered appropriately white or European. Uh, and once upon a time, that this kind of ferocity was aimed at them. A, uh, in July, a New Hampshire judge dismissed a civil rights complaint brought by the state against NSC 131 for a racist banner drop executed over a state highway with a sign that read, Keep New England White. The judge ruled that the action, though reprehensible by most civilized standards, was not illegal. Okay, I think that's correct. I mean, you're going to uh, try to arrest people for putting up 
a sign, a drop banner that people are holding on a freeway overpass. The neo-Nazi group now asserts on social media that it is a non-violent pro-white fraternity in the New England area that engages in First Amendment protected political protests and demonstrations. The group has its own telegram channel that hypes videos of its violent street encounters. I'm sure that would be very popular. We will be right back. Medved show with the uh, talk of the neo-Nazis in uh, New England uh, with their black hoodies and uh, khakis uh, trying to establish a separate state. It brings up the whole idea of secession and states breaking apart and uh, reliving some of the horrors of the Civil War, God forbid, a thousand times. But uh, Mayor Eric Adams of New York is one of those people who is caught right in the middle because uh, New York has declared itself a sanctuary city. It uh, has always been uh, perhaps the leading city. There have been others that have been rivals for that claim uh, for immigration in the country uh, when people... Uh, the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor became a symbol uh, on behalf of immigration, though it was not intended that way. It was certainly honored that way after it was erected because of the poem by Emma Lazarus that is uh, Emma Lazarus that is inscribed at the base of the statue. Uh, Give us your uh, your poor, your hungry, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Send the storm-tossed, tempest-tossed to me. Um, In any event, uh, Mayor Adams was on CBS this morning complaining uh, that border states have created a funnel right to New York City. Uh, Here is his honor, the mayor. Well, think about what happened in the last few um, uh, months. Uh, We have created a funnel. All the bordering states have now took the funnel right to New York City. New York, is the, New York City is the economic engine of this entire state and country. Mm. If you decimate this city, you're going to decimate the foundation of what's happening. Look at Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, Houston, and now you're hearing the governor of Massachusetts. And so when people say, well, they have, we gave them $100 million, $12 billion bill? Yeah. I mean, we're so table, what do you like, think, when you see all the people that are just laying in the streets, you walk by, it is jaw-dropping. Yeah. And the numbers keep coming and coming when you think... There's, I, I don't have any more room at the end, so to speak. Along with the unhoused people we already have here. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And think about the miracle that took place over the last year in April when this really started coming from a governor who wanted to use people as pawns. Okay, and uh, what they were talking about is um, two different problems because among the houseless people, people experiencing homelessness, uh, there aren't uh, that many, 
and certainly not in New York City, uh, immigrants of any kind. And uh, as a matter, why not? Because they're concerned about being picked up. And obviously people don't want to be deported. Uh, angry New Yorkers spoke out. This is Man on the Street audio about the burden that this influx of uh, new illegal immigrants have had on the city of New York. This whole thing is only going to is going to snowball uh, because the schools are going to open in about two weeks. All right, and we're totally unprepared to handle that. Look behind us. There's a park. There's a YMCA there. We have a charter school behind us. A preschool on the side. This is outrageous. They are putting non-American before American. Okay. Uh, again, uh, that is certainly is a outrageous. Uh, giving. Uh, principal concern to people who are newly arrived as opposed to people who have lived and paid taxes and done their part building up a city. Uh, one of the big uh, bits of news that we covered yesterday was the commitment by Larry Ellison to uh, provide a what is called a 10-figure uh, uh, donation to the Tim Scott campaign for presidency. He was giving the money to a super PAC associated with Tim Scott. And uh, now there's a new ad that is up today in Iowa and New Hampshire on behalf of the South Carolina senator who is uh, running either third or fourth depending on which uh, poll you believe among Republicans. Uh, listen, this is clip three. If you don't control your back door, it's not your house. And if we don't control this border, it's not our country. Last year, we lost 70,000 Americans to fentanyl because Joe Biden surrendered our southern border to the Mexican drug cartels. As commander-in-chief, I will unleash our military to crush the cartels and stop these terrorists from killing our kids. I'm Tim Scott and I approve this message because border security is national security. Okay, uh, border security is national security. Uh, the, the idea that Joe Biden uh, deliberately allowed uh, fentanyl and the passage of fentanyl to come to the United States uh, and that this is associated with, um, uh, I'm not sure what he's talking about, unleashing our military on the drug cartels. The drug cartels are based in Mexico. And without cooperation with Mexico, and they're not going to get that cooperation from President um, AMLO, uh, President uh, Andres Lopez, um, uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, I'm the the idea of running an ad like that in Iowa is that going to help Tim Scott catch up with uh, uh, Ron DeSantis and uh, eventually challenge Donald Trump? Uh, we will see uh, because all of this uh, uh, goes down to this basic competition that is going to have a high point at the debates uh, 13 nights from tonight. Uh, Chris Christie uh, is um, trying very hard 
to bait President Trump into uh, coming and uh, uh, debating further. He um, uh, spoke at a town hall in New Hampshire, clip four. He's a big talker when we're a few miles away from each other. He's got a lot to say when he's got a phone in his hand posting something on social media. We're going to know what he's really made of if we see whether he shows up two weeks from tonight or not on that stage. Because I'll tell you one thing for sure. I will be there, and I am waiting for him. And then we'll answer him. Because where I grew up and the way I was raised was a man who has something to say to another man comes up to him and looks him in the eye and says it to him. And a coward does the opposite. So we'll see if the coward shows up two weeks from tonight in Milwaukee, but I will be there. And uh, will Trump be there? This is uh, Trump's latest statement on that issue. Uh, Clip 10. When you're at 75, 78, 80%, and other guys are at zero, 1%, 2%, 3%, you do say, uh, what's the upside? Am I going to go up one point? But they could go up. You know, they're not dumb people. They're senators. They're governors. They're intelligent people. You have some very good people. I think you have some very good people, and you have some people. I mean, I have a problem with the debate for another reason. I wouldn't sign the pledge. Why would I sign a pledge? There are people on there that I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have certain people as, you know, somebody that I'd endorse. So they want you to sign a pledge. But I can name three or four people that I wouldn't support for president. Uh, and let's try to imagine who those people would be. And uh, this is uh, Chris Christie claiming that he is moving up in the polls. This is clip six. In just the last um, two days, there have been two more polls that have come out that now have me tied for second with Governor DeSantis, um, one at uh, 11% and one at 9%. So we feel like it's really moving in our direction. Our momentum is going the right way. Governor DeSantis is, is going in the wrong direction. And so first job is to get past Governor DeSantis here in New Hampshire. We've now caught him. Now we need to pass him. And then we're going to take on Donald Trump one-on-one. Uh, and is that the shape of the campaign? The uh, rich donors want DeSantis to be nor- more normal. Will that work out? And how many people have now faced January 6th criminal charges? No, it's not just one. It's not just uh, President uh, Trump. It's more than that. And what is the proof, finally, that Joe Biden did benefit from the sleazy negotiations by uh, machinations by Hunter Biden in this greatest nation on God's green earth.